0: I didn't really discover science until after high school. I was open-minded, I was intelligent, but totally undereducated and rudderless. I only went to community college because that seemed to be what we were all doing. And thank God for good professors. It only takes exposure to a few good ideas from a few good teachers to change the course of lives. My parents never went to college and they weren't pressuring me to do so either. As far as I can recall, my parents were totally indifferent to what I did with my life. They were from the tail end of the baby boom, a generation that had managed all right for themselves, and the message I received was, Okay, kid, you're out of high school, now get the fuck out of my house and go get your own life. This one is mine. We'll see you at Christmas. So I had a lot of jobs, a lot of shitty cars, a lot of shitty apartments, and I accumulated debt. I discovered science in a psychology class at Jackson Community College and I determined to become a neuroscientist. I'm really glad I didn't know at the time how long and difficult a journey that would turn out to be. I just kept grinding. I graduated with a two-year degree with decent grades and thought I'd transfer to a bachelor's program. I was living in Orlando, Florida and the university told me that my two years wouldn't transfer. I needed a lot more classes and if I wanted to study biology, a lot more transferable science and math courses. So I enrolled at Valencia Community College and spent another couple of years in full-time study. Meanwhile, I was bussing tables in a Mexican restaurant and accumulating more debt. I was exposed to some more good professors. Did I mention how valuable they are? I attained another two-year degree. Ultimately, I transferred to the University of Central Florida. I did pretty well, got a bachelor's degree on student loans, moved back to Michigan. But you can't be a neuroscientist on a bachelor's degree. Why am I telling you this biography? Give me a minute and I'll explain. I couldn't get into graduate school. I couldn't get an interview or a solid piece of advice on how to get an interview. It was a highly competitive process. I had a good score on the GRE. My grades were sufficient. I could write a good enough essay. But for three years running, I received nothing back from the neuroscience graduate programs, nothing but form letters. We're sorry. As you know, the graduate program at Dartmouth, at Amherst, at Rochester, at Purdue, at Michigan State is highly competitive and we receive far more applications each year than we can grant. We wish you good luck in the future. I was delivering pizzas. I was stocking shelves. I was despondent. I learned that significant research experience was a prerequisite for entrance into graduate school. At some point, I looked up every neuroscience lab in Ann Arbor and sent them an email. Somebody hired me as a research tech. I made a salary of $27,000, more than I had ever made in a year before. I worked in a second lab after that. I started to learn how to do science. I got published. It was another three years before I got into U of M. It took almost another seven years to get my PhD. So let me get to the point. We are leaving behind bright young people in America. There is no clear path. For some reason, by sheer force of will, I never gave up, but I probably should have. Maybe I would own my own home, have a good job, be able to take my kids on vacation. I learned that it's possible to achieve the highest places if you just keep grinding. I couldn't believe my good fortune to be at the University of Michigan. My colleagues were intelligent and enthusiastic. Most of them were better students. Their parents were doctors and engineers. They had gone to great universities and worked in interesting labs. Many of them had never had a job before. Jesus. How are we going to lead the way to open doors to the outsiders? the brilliant young men and women scattered across the country in small towns and in urban public housing. With broken families and failing schools and politicians that serve their corporate donors, we are letting genius slip right through the cracks of the unkept pavements of America. Have we forgotten that the greatest resource we have is the creative ingenuity and free expression of novelty which our rich and diverse republic sustains? The movies, the airplane, jazz the Bill of Rights, the automobile, the space program, the blues, bluegrass, stand-up comedy, the skyscraper, the civil rights movement, the Human Genome Project, hip-hop, rock and fucking roll. I love you guys, you Americans from all over the world. When I become a professor, my office door will be open. What thing is consciousness? In the materialist sense, of what is a mind composed. I have previously introduced you to the ideas of substance dualism and property dualism, conceptions of consciousness as something irreducible to physics. Substance dualism claims that consciousness is made of mental stuff, something outside of physics. Property dualism conceives of consciousness as an emergent property of the brain. As I have said before, that proposition seems reasonable to me, but I don't believe the whole story is well described by property dualism. In the very first episode of this podcast, I said the following, I am not convinced that an emergent property is irreducible. This seems like a conceptual sleight of hand. Isn't flight an emergent property of having effective wings? But flight can be fully explained in physical terms. In my opinion, a robust theory of consciousness will undergo inter-theoretic reduction to a unified theory in physics, and thereby solve the hard problem. The topic of this podcast is identity. Identity in the philosophical sense of the term. I want to explore what consciousness is, what physically describable thing a conscious mind is. In the history of philosophy, A.C. Grayling discusses identity theories of mind with a focus on the work of U.T. Place, Herbert Fagel, and J.J.C. Smart. He writes, quote, Place argued that the identity in question is not of the X equals X variety, but is compositional identity. A cloud is a collection of water droplets but a water droplet is not a cloud. In the same way, a mental event is composed out of physical events, and when we know enough about both, we will be able to show how the former reduces to the latter. Fagel and Smart, employing Frege's sense-reference distinction, took the view that the identity between types of phenomenal states and physical states is x equals x-identity. So, expression describing the respective states differ in sense but refer to the same thing." We see that identity theories are materialist attempts to establish the thing or collection of things in the physical world that a conscious mind is. There are plenty of examples in which scientific progress has established identity between some phenomenon and some physical thing. Patricia Churchland likes the example of light. In Neurophilosophy, she writes, quote, ontology pertains to what entities and properties exist. And in the event of intertheoretic reduction, it may turn out that where we had thought there existed two different kinds of phenomena, characterized by the laws of two different theories, there is in fact but one kind of phenomenon that is described by both theories. For example, in the mid-19th century, it was widely supposed that light was one sort of phenomenon, and electromagnetic effects quite another. By the turn of the century, the laws of optics had been reduced to the laws of electromagnetic theory and we understood that light is electromagnetic radiation. We understood what light is for the very first time in the sense that we understood why the laws of optics are as they are." So this example of light and electromagnetic radiation shows an identity. It is reasonable to assume that something in the physical world is identical in this way to consciousness. If not, then materialism has to be abandoned. In The Conscious Mind, David Chalmers describes the argument advanced by Saul Kripke against identity theories of mind. Chalmers writes, quote, The argument goes roughly as follows. According to the identity thesis, certain mental states such as pains and brain states such as c fibers firing are identical, even though pain and c fibers firing do not mean the same thing. The identity here was originally supposed to be contingent rather than necessary, just as the identity between water and H2O is contingent. Against this, Kripke argues that all identities are necessary. If X is Y, then X is necessarily Y, as long as the terms X and Y designate rigidly, picking out the same individual or kind across worlds. Water is necessarily H2O, he argues. That is, water is H2O in every possible world. The identity may seem contingent, that is, it might seem that there is a possible world in which water is not H2O but XYZ, but this is illusory. In fact, the possible world one is imagining contains no water at all." So far, so good. It seems to me that Kripke's argument is perfectly sensible. All identities are necessary identities. I agree with that. If we are to discover what consciousness is in terms of the physical world and its laws, We will have a necessary identity between the phenomenon and the physics of which it is composed." Chalmers goes on, Similarly, Kripke argues, if pains are identical to the firing of C-fibers, then this identity must be necessary. But the identity does not seem to be necessary. On the face of it, one can imagine a possible world where a pain occurs without any brain state whatsoever, disembodied pain, and one can imagine a world in which C-fibers fire without any accompanying pain. In a zombie say? Unquote. Hold on. What the fuck is disembodied pain? What difference does it make if you can imagine a world? I can imagine a world in which light is not electromagnetic radiation, but magic. This is not an argument against the identity of light with electromagnetic radiation. Disembodied pain sounds as unreasonable to me as disembodied light or disembodied matter. This is disembodied bullshit. Let's read on. Quote. On such an account, the zombie would presumably have real pain, which is the firing of C-fibers. It is just that it doesn't feel like real pain. But this cannot be the case, according to Kripke. All it is for something to be pain is for it to feel like pain. There is no distinction between pain and painy stuff, in the way that there is a distinction between water and watery stuff. One could have something that felt like water without it being water, but one could not have something that felt like pain without it being pain pain's feel is essential to it. So the possibility of pains without the brain states and vice versa cannot be dismissed as before. Those possible worlds really are possible, and mental states are not necessarily identical to brain states. It follows that they cannot be identical to brain states at all." Kripke and even Chalmers himself go on to reject materialism, but an argument like this does not establish that rejection. First of all, the identity of C-fibers firing to pain makes no sense. Of course C-fibers firing is not identical to pain. Similarly, no group of neurons firing could be identical to the conscious contents that occur. The line of reasoning here does a pretty good job of establishing that, but that does not mean that conscious contents are not identical to something. Secondly, the identity between brain states and mental states doesn't work either, because in a physical world made of physical stuff and governed by physical laws, there is no reason that a machine could not be made to exhibit conscious experiences, pain or otherwise. I, for one, am not ready to abandon materialism. I'm reminded of God of the gaps arguments. If we don't know what consciousness is in physical terms, then it must not be a physical phenomenon. Sorry, that doesn't follow. In the history of philosophy, Grayling writes, quote, Two of the chief objections to identity theories are, first, that it restricts mental phenomena to brains. What about the possibility that computers or other not necessarily biological entities have mental states? and secondly, that they say nothing about one of the most puzzling features of mental life, namely the existence of qualia, that is, the felt quality of experiences of pain, pleasure, hunger, desire, depression, and the like, the subjective aspect of mental life. Functionalism attempts to reconcile the first of these objections by identifying mental states with the causal roles they play, with their functional states independent of whether they occur in a biological or a non-biological system. But this, to me, looks too much like behaviorism, but because it attempts to reduce consciousness to computation and output. Plenty of subjective experiences do not produce behavioral output, but they certainly exist and need explaining. Could consciousness be a computational process? I don't think so. My favorite argument against functionalism comes from John Searle. I'll repeat it here in his words from the book The Mystery of Consciousness. Searle wrote, quote, Imagine that you carry out the steps in a program for answering questions in a language you do not understand. I do not understand Chinese, so I imagine that I am locked in a room with a lot of boxes of Chinese symbols, the database. I get small bunches of Chinese symbols passed to me, questions in Chinese, and I look up in a rule book, the program, what I am supposed to do. I perform certain operations on the symbols in accordance with the rules, that is, I carry out the steps of the program and give back small bunches of symbols. Answers to the questions, to those outside the room. I am the computer implementing a program for answering questions in Chinese, but all the same I do not understand a word of Chinese. And this is the point. If I do not understand Chinese solely on the basis of implementing a computer program for understanding Chinese, then neither does any other digital computer solely on that basis, because no digital computer has anything that I do not have. Unquote. As I told you in a previous episode, Searle here illustrates the difference between syntax, which is to say, symbols, and semantics, which is to say, meaning. In the brain, action potentials and other kinds of cellular events can be thought of in terms of syntax, but consciousness occurs in the form of semantics, of meaning. In my framework, the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, I have sought to explain consciousness as a composition of meanings. I'll briefly go over the framework, which was presented with some detail in Episode 6. According to the TICL, a massive integrated system of neurons occurs in the thalamocortex. The system is defined as the network of neuronal elements that have an irreducible, non-zero level of temporally integrated causality. What that means is that every element in the system has some amount of cause-effect power on every other element in the system. They're integrated. But such a system is insufficient to produce conscious experiences. Within the system, there are subsystems composed of a smaller subset of neuronal elements. The key is that a subsystem is defined as a set of integrated neuronal elements that have a higher level of temporally integrated causality than the larger system in which they occur. A subsystem is also insufficient for conscious experience. Together, a system with subsystems within it will experience the above-threshold activity of those subsystems in the form of conscious contents. Any subsystem will produce meaningful content from the point of view of the system. The vast majority of random groups of neurons in the network will not produce conscious contents. Their temporally integrated causality will occur within the noise of the whole system. Due to the specific evolved organization of the cerebral cortex into hierarchies and maps, the particular subsystems that occur at any given time will have particular, specific contents that are meaningful from the point of view of the system as a whole. With this theoretical framework, I suggest an identity for both the conscious mind and the contents of which it is composed. Consciousness is a causal structure in which causal structures are distinguishable within it. Consciousness is composed of causality. I do not think that consciousness is identical to causality in an x equals x way. Rather, like place, I argue that a conscious mind has a compositional identity to integrated causality. Place pointed out that a cloud is composed of droplets of water. That is what a cloud is. It is a system of water droplets with certain describable features. Likewise, consciousness is a composition of causal relationships that occurs in a highly integrated system, whether it is arranged by biology or engineering or otherwise. Conscious contents exist only inside of such a system of integrated causality. They only exist from the point of view of that system and the way in which they exist from that point of view is dependent on the relationship between subsystems of integrated causality and the overall system of integrated causality. The identity here is not between the neurons or the brain's anatomical structures composed of matter and consciousness. The identity is between integrated causality and consciousness. In the case of human consciousness, this occurs upon the physical substrate of the thalamocortical system. Human consciousness emerges from activity in the brain, Consciousness itself should not be assumed to require humans or their brains. It is a physical phenomenon in a material universe. Cause and effect have vexed philosophers and physicists forever. But I believe causality to be the key to understanding consciousness. Causality itself is not consciousness, just as droplets of water are not clouds. But arrangements of causality appear to enable consciousness, and my claim is that the arrangement of integrated causality which correlates with consciousness is identical to that consciousness. I can't take credit for being the first to notice the connection between causality and consciousness. A paper on integrated information theory by Giulio Tononi, Melanie Boley, Marcello Massimini, and Christoph Koch says, quote, the fundamental identity of IIT can be stated as follows. An experience is identical to a conceptual structure, meaning that every property of the experience must correspond to a property of the conceptual structure and vice versa. Note that the postulated identity is between an experience and the conceptual structure specified by the physical substrate of consciousness, not between an experience and the set of elements in a state constituting the physical structure of consciousness." In IIT, conceptual structures are composed of cause-effect relations. So the precise identity suggested there is similar in some respects to my own claim. There's still so much that we don't know. So much remains to be discovered, my friends. Let's go exploring. Isn't that what we do best?